The Interchange is brought to you by Schneider Electric. So, what's your risk exposure to increasing energy costs? Do you have a plan to lower that risk? Here's one way, a microgrid. A microgrid solution can optimize your distributed energy resources, helping unlock new revenue streams and avoid costly peak demand charges. Now you can reap the benefits of a microgrid with no upfront capital through a new microgrid as a service business model from Schneider Electric. Find out more about how it works at www.schneider-electric.us/microgrid. Or if it's easier, just follow the link in the show notes of the podcast page. This is The Interchange, conversations about the global energy transformation from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey in Boston. Out in Berkeley, California is my co-host, Shale Khan. How are things in those Berkeley Hills treating you, Shale? They are beautiful as ever, Stephen. You know, America considers itself to be one of the most advanced countries in the world. But we can't even get the power back on for our citizens. Three months after Hurricane Maria, there are still large swaths of Puerto Rico that don't have power. It took two months to get half the island's residents' power again, and hundreds of thousands are still without grid access. After a slow start, there are mainland crews there working day and night to restore electricity, and they've been making progress, even with the geographic and infrastructure challenges that are unique to Puerto Rico. But let's not mince words. This whole situation is embarrassing, and it's a tragedy. And we have the technologies to do something about it. So out of the outage, we're getting a sense of what a resilient Puerto Rican grid could look like. The Puerto Rican Energy Commission recently asked for some of those ideas, and some of the most forward-thinking heavy hitters in the industry have responded. And that's what we're discussing today. We're going to talk mostly about one plan from the global energy company AES that looks at solar storage mini-grids as a competitor to gas and coal, and we're going to get to that in a minute. But first, a bit of context about what's going on in Puerto Rico. Shale, give us the lay of the land uh, uh, with regard to the recovery efforts. Right. So as you mentioned, I mean, this is a humanitarian crisis on an order of magnitude that like, we just haven't seen in the U.S. in any recent history. There was the Rhodium Group put together a breakdown of the largest blackouts in U.S. history, and they estimate that Maria, which is mostly Puerto Rico, but also Virgin Islands, is already twice as large as the next largest blackout we've ever had in the United States in terms of millions of customer hours of lost electricity demand. It's just huge. And as you mentioned, we're 90 days out from it now. So this has been three months. Remember, we just had a little freak out in the news earlier this week because the Atlanta airport lost power for 11 hours. This is 90 days and counting. At this point, um, generation is back to about two thirds around 70%. It seems to fluctuate of maximum, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that number of customers are actually getting power. There was good reporting by our own Emma Ferenger merchant on this a while back about what that actually means, the portion of generation that is online. There are still nine out of the territories, 78 municipalities that don't have any power whatsoever. And the ones that do have power, many of them, they're using backup generators. So that, you know, a lot of the way that power has been restored in the places that it has is 
um, by importing generators and, and burning diesel, which is both expensive and dirty and also not sustainable in the long term. So there is an incredible effort. And I, I want to, you know, give the largest props that I possibly can to everybody who's working hard there. There are thousands of people who are there every single day in the Army Corps and FEMA and private companies and uh, philanthropic organizations that are working on this. But it is incredible that we still have so many American citizens who are sitting there without power today. There's also a really good report that just came out today from E&E News behind a paywall, but highly recommend if you can get a hold of it because it, it lays out in pretty great detail what's still needed there. And it's a lot. The latest official estimates are that full power recovery is going to come sometime around May, which will make it eight months after the hurricane struck. And just the magnitude of what they need is amazing. They, they, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers received a shipment of about 2,600 power poles in the last week. They're going to get 5,000 more this week, but they need 36,000 more. They need 2,500 miles of wire. They need 6,000 new transformers. And transformers are in short supply in part because we also had all these crises on the mainland. So there are transformers being delivered to Florida and Texas. Um, and so it's actually hard to get all this stuff. So it's just, you know, it's incredibly saddening to hear about this. And, and though I think the news has covered it periodically. And there was a really great kind of heart-wrenching piece in the Washington Post a couple of weeks ago that was laying out what it's like for all these people in Puerto Rico without power. Um, though they're covering that some, it's just not in the news every day because there's so much else going on, which in some ways is is insane, just given what's happening there. I saw Trevor Hauser tweet out that chart from the Rhodium Group looking at where Puerto Rico stacks up with previous outages. Just sit on that for a second. I mean, Think about it. The The next largest outage behind this Hurricane Maria Puerto Rico outage is half the size. It's less than half the size and counting. I mean, the point is we haven't achieved full recovery yet or anywhere close to it. So this is just going to tick up. I mean, it's hard to imagine we don't end up less than triple the size of the next biggest outage. So it's December 20th today. Hurricane Maria hit on September 20th. As of this recording, we are 90 days into this crisis. Um, and so finally, in November, a couple months in, PREPA and the Puerto Rico Energy Commission, they start soliciting ideas from the industry. And, and they say, okay, how can we rebuild the grid differently? We're still in like emergency mode, and they're trying to repair many of these transmission lines and the distribution grid. And there are a lot of unique challenges to Puerto Rico right now, equipment constraints, land uh, issues that make it very difficult to repair these lines. But they're starting to think about what comes next. And that brings us to today. So when the utility and the energy commission, they asked for this plan for a more resilient system, AES stepped in. And AES is this massive energy company that operates in 17 countries. It's very heavy in gas and coal, but it is, it's, it's expanding quickly into renewables. They're this pioneering company in energy storage. They've built some of the first grid-connected battery plants in the U.S., and they're a dominant developer in the space. So they've been in Puerto Rico for a couple decades, and they own a 510-megawatt coal plant that provides about 15% of electricity. And it's just sitting there like with nowhere to send the power. So 
AES steps up and they say, rather than, you know, push more gas and coal, um, which, you know, they still see as valuable in certain markets, they're they're building, they want to build this networked system of regional mini grids with just solar and batteries because they think it's the cheapest and most effective way to build back the grid. Shale, I think this is pretty remarkable. Do you, do you think it's a, like a remarkable milestone that this company's developing um, a, a plan with only solar and storage? I do to an extent. I mean, first, actually, let me make a side note, which is you pointed out AES has a coal plant that's just sitting there and can't operate. You know, if only that coal plant had 90 days of fuel supply, then it still wouldn't be able to operate. Like it just, it just further drives home the point that this, this DOE plan that Rick Perry proposed to save baseload plants, like isn't actually a resiliency plan. Right. Anyway. For, for those of you who may, may not have been paying attention to anything we've been saying over the last few months, uh, that Rick Perry plan would, of course, incentivize power plants with 90 days of on-site fuel supply, which is based basically only piles of coal or maybe a nuclear power plant with, you know, uranium. Uh, and sure enough, that coal plant's been sitting there with tons of fuel ready to go and it's done nothing. Yeah. So, okay. So setting that aside, um, you know, AES has actually been at the forefront of a lot of this stuff for a while. AES is a really interesting company in that regard because they, they have, um, regulated utilities in the US they have they own power plants of all sorts as you mentioned in 17 different countries but they've also been you know they are the early leader in deployment of grid scale energy storage they acquired a distributed solar company a few years ago so it's no surprise to me that they believe in those technologies they've been proving those technologies out more than almost anybody else for years um you know it's interesting that and i think this is the the key point and chris makes this point in the interview is that they're looking at this from the perspective of what will be the least cost way to ensure reliability in puerto rico and so what they did is they modeled out how much solar would you need to meet all the generation demands on the grid? How much battery storage would you need to make sure that you can deliver that solar at the right times? And then, you know, at sort of the first level of depth, uh, what would the cost be of that? And so their estimate was the cost of generation of the solar would be 40 to $50 a megawatt hour, which is consistent with what we are seeing in other, you know, island grids and large scale solar. What would be the cost of battery storage would be, and this is on a levelized basis, assuming sort of daily usage, um, which matters in terms of what the levelized cost of storage is. They assume that'll be 55 to $65 per megawatt hour, again, consistent with what we're seeing in other places. And then the total cost to the system, because you don't end up charging all the batteries with all of that solar, right? Some of the solar just gets delivered into the grid because it is generating at the times when you need it. So about half of it just gets delivered straight into the grid. The other half goes through the battery to get delivered later on when the sun isn't shining. They estimated that the total cost of all of that on a levelized basis is somewhere between 70 and $80 a megawatt hour. Now that for context, that's about the same price as LNG, liquefied natural gas, which we talked about with Chris as well. And there are other reasons why this is preferable to LNG. But Either this plan with solar and storage or LNG at seventy or eighty dollars a megawatt hour, far cheaper than the cost of generation on the grid today, which is largely comprised of um, imported oil. So, with island grids, there is a real opportunity, just from a purely economic basis, to install most, if not all, solar and storage, and sometimes wind 
um, and actually just lower costs. And that was the perspective that I think AES was taking here, which is why it isn't super surprising to me that they ended up with this vision as opposed to another one. Right. Chris said that they had 10 days to put together this vision and they locked a bunch of engineers in a room and had them, you know, model out these um, cost profiles for each technology and, you know, figure out what, what technology fit would work best for Puerto Rico's grid. And then we, we talked a little bit more about that modeling and then we discuss how it could be applied to other island grids that are seeing similar constraints. What I like about this plan is that it is unique from other stuff that's been proposed out there. I like to refer to it as the Goldilocks solution. You have the rebuilding effort today, which is focused basically on the conventional centralized transmission system that is clearly very difficult to repair. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have comments and plans from like the Advanced Energy Management Alliance, of which my co-host on the Energy Gang, Catherine Hamilton, heads up, and she submitted a plan from AEMA that focuses basically on like the what I you know like what I refer to as the New York State approach what they're doing with Rev basically like remove all third party barriers to DER management and it's very localized and distribution grid focused the Smart Electric Power Alliance in collaboration with the folks from New York who've put together this energy resilience working group have um proposed this microgrid plan where they first focus on critical facilities and then expand microgrids throughout the country uh, in key populated areas. And so what AES's plan does is kind of tie those plans together into a more regionalized mini-grid approach, which we'll talk to Chris about. And so it fits in nicely to the range of plans that have been uh, proposed so far under this solicitation. Yeah, I think oftentimes, and we're guilty of this too, we've sort of, when we talk about distributed energy resources, and especially when we talk about microgrids, the way that we're contextualizing it is we're assuming that the basic infrastructure of the grid, the transmission and distribution system, largely remains intact as it currently stands. And that then on top of that, you add an additional layer, which is a microgrid that can island to provide resiliency in the event of a blackout for whatever reason. And so that's the kind of keep everything the same, but add an additional layer of resiliency. Then there are folks that we haven't talked to a lot, but who think that the whole thing should be distributed and that you you don't need a centralized grid at all. And AES sort of ends up here somewhere in the middle. They build these regionalized microgrids. They're tied to each other. So there is a transmission system, but it's a lot more limited than what you've had in the past. And um, the mini grids can island from each other. So if you have the transmission system going down partially, which is definitely what happened in Maria, um, it doesn't send the whole system awry. Well, let's hear more about these mini grids. So take a listen to our interview with Chris Shelton, who is the chief technology officer at AES Corporation. We started off the conversation by asking him about where things stand in Puerto Rico currently and the company's power operations. And then we started working into the plan itself. Basically, Puerto Rico is in a position of, of still recovering um, and trying to restore electricity. Um, the power generation available is, you know, roughly, I think the last time I saw it reported was in the, the 60% range. Um, and it's been um, several months now where you have uh, significant portions of the population not having electricity. And so 
One of the things that we're going to talk a lot about is this plan that that you and AES have proposed for how to rebuild the grid in Puerto Rico in, in a different way. And I guess I'm curious before we talk about that, the recovery efforts that are happening right now, the folks who are on the ground, you know, putting poles and lines and wires back in place, is the default that they're currently rebuilding exactly the same as the grid was designed before, or are they already making big changes to it? I don't think big changes are being made from what from what we've heard. Uh, there are some sort of um, smart approaches that are being applied uh, to, um, you know, where you can easily uh, harden or put something back in a better way. I, I've heard that um, the FEMA folks and uh, the Army Corps are, are addressing those that can be done kind of in real time as you're uh, restoring the, the original infrastructure. Uh, so not a lot of massive change happening at the moment. And honestly, you're trying to recover. So you, you don't really have a lot of time to uh, re-engineer before you focus on the immediate recovery. So, you know, I think that's why the, the discussions that the Puerto Rico Electric Commission has encouraged and that DOE and uh, the New York stakeholders and the Puerto Rico government are encouraging are, are important because they inform the next stages, you know, where the next um, tranche of, of dollars will be spent and how they can be spent uh, to make this a smart, uh, the second phase of smart recovery. You've been operating in Puerto Rico for 20 years. What's the makeup of your power assets there? You're on both sides of the spectrum. You've got a massive coal plant there, and you've also developed one of the bigger solar systems there. What What are your power operations like in Puerto Rico? Sure. We have a power plant that's been operating there serving PREPA for the last 15 years. Uh, it's a very reliable um, thermal power plant. It It's made up of a couple of units, and um, it's one of the least cost supplies of energy to the island and one of the most reliable. And about five years ago, we developed uh, the first grid scale solar project, solar PV. It's a 24 megawatt DC facility there uh, near our power plant. We're going to talk about this plan that AES has put out for how to redesign the grid. I think it'd be useful to start to put that in the context of how the grid has been designed historically in Puerto Rico. Can you just sort of quickly characterize how was the grid designed and in what ways did that contribute to the challenge that we're facing right now in recovery? Uh, it is what you see a lot of times in an island context where you have to bring uh, energy in different forms through ports into power facilities and then those power facilities usually have to sit near the coast and then those those coastal facilities get transmitted across the island um, so that design um, is is in place today in puerto rico and then um, it, a unique aspect of puerto rico is that the the least cost power plants and uh, are on the south part of Puerto Rico. And so you have some more expensive power plants on the north side serving the San Juan area. Um, and so the cross island interconnection is very important. And, um, you know, you need all the all of the different regions of the island need to be operating and interconnected to supply energy to a significant portion of the population and to the manufacturing and industry on the island. Right. So basically, there's 
you, you've got power plants that are sort of a ring around the outside of the island, the cheaper ones being on the south, but more of the population center on the north. And then you've got a transmission system that sort of lines, it's the circumference of the island. It runs around the outside. And so does that mean that what happened during Maria in part is that it knocked down some of those transmission lines around the outside of the island, which then shut off power for basically the entire island because there was no kind of backup if those transmission lines went down? Yes, and you well, you have two uh, cross-cutting uh, connections as well that that go over the center of the island through um, a you know pretty rough terrain as well. So those those lines sustained a significant amount of damage from the hurricane, and um, that's one of the focuses has been on hey you know can we harden those, and that's where um, the New York vision that, that came out a few uh, weeks ago you know, put a lot of the focus because of the experience from Sandy um, that, that New York had had. They wanted to focus on the hardening aspect, and I think they did a great job of, of outlining ways that can be done in the Puerto Rico context, obviously. Not, it's not exactly the same as what New York experienced. So that brings us to these plans that are in the works for Puerto Rico. You mentioned the New York one, which is part of this Energy Resilience Working Group for Puerto Rico, which includes um, a bunch of utilities in New York and advocacy groups and um, government agencies that are trying to apply lessons from Superstorm Superstorm Sandy to grid hardening and resilience efforts in Puerto Rico. Um, There's also a plan from the Advanced Energy Management Alliance, which um, also looks at broader distributed energy resource management and from the Smart Electric Power Alliance. Uh, AES also submitted its plan, which is what we're going to be talking about today. But first, I want to kind of put it into context and ask what Puerto Rico was asking for when it went out and solicited these ideas. So uh, last month, the Puerto Rico Energy Commission goes out and, and says to stakeholders, we need ideas on how to improve power restoration and the performance of the grid. Um, what exactly were they looking for? Sure. They, they had a lot of interest in making sure that they were getting new ideas from uh, all the stakeholders that was highlighted in their request. In particular, they've, they had heard, been hearing a lot about microgrids and uh, those types of solutions, and they wanted to hear transformative ideas from stakeholders. So at AES, we, uh, we looked at that request and said, we think you know, one interesting uh, set of inputs that AES could give is our experience in energy storage, as being a leader in deploying grid-scale storage around the world, and also our experience in solar um, with the work we are doing at S-Power and and other markets around the world. So we wanted to inform uh, the discussion and and put a team together that had about 10 days to come up with an interesting set of transformative uh, solutions and ideas. And that team came together with this mini grid vision uh, within those 10 days. And, and there's some surprising outcomes, I think, that you know we want to share uh, with the community here. So I found your plan really fascinating, and I want to dig into some of the details of it. But before we do, let's put it into context. I think actually you guys lay out really well this spectrum of options that 
that Puerto Rico has in front of it. On one end of the spectrum being basically design a more resilient transmission system. So keep a lot of transmission, in fact, add additional transmission, create redundancy and make it so that that system is hardened, but don't make any, you know, big structural changes, don't don't develop a, you know, distributed grid, don't do a lot of microgrids. The other end of the spectrum then that you lay out is this fully distributed system, which a lot of folks in the microgrid community or distributed energy resource providers probably would favor, which basically is, you know, purely microgrids or almost entirely microgrids, um, which are resilient themselves, but are somewhat islanded or can be islanded. And then what you guys end up proposing is this middle ground um, that you define as as mini grids with hardened critical tie lines. So can you just kind of walk us through the high level picture of what that mini grid vision looks like and also the distinction between a mini grid and a microgrid? Sure. So I, I want to take a step back and talk about what the design criteria were. So we, we put folks in a room, they had 10 days, and we had two primary uh, criteria that we used. One was to focus on the fuel cost on the island, which is very high. So you, you have um, imported fuel oil and driving the majority of the production of electricity uh, in very inefficient units. So there are a lot of steam units that are burning oil to make steam to make electricity, which is, is, is not a, an efficient combination. So we saw that as you know, an issue that's fundamental to the entire economy for Puerto Rico. And we, we wanted to make sure that that was addressed as part of the solution. The, other, the second criteria was maximizing the ability to serve demand on a day two after the next hurricane like Maria. So if you have another hurricane at this level, and you have, um, and you expect to have some damage to transmission. Which solution set would give you the most ability to serve demand on day two? So those were the two criteria, and um, <clears throat> what the team realized was that the grid itself it can be very valuable in when you're trying to solve that issue, and when you introduce the fact that solar. But when you do the comparison, solar is one of the least cost, if not the least cost way to get energy onto the island. And maybe, you know, alongside that, uh, a decent amount of wind as well. Y you, you now say, okay, I can distribute energy across this island from renewable sources, and I can use the distribution system as, as kind of the core of that. And if you look at that, that's, that's basically like a microgrid. And, but the concern that we had is that it wouldn't wouldn't get across the point of how big the these regions would be and the fact that they would use the, the existing distribution. Um, so we, we coined, we used the term other people had been using. So, you know, we did some research and said, let's use the word mini grid. Other people have used this before. It usually is bigger than a microgrid. And then here it has the distinction of being built out of the existing, uh, you know, utility electric grid. Uh, so you essentially segment it out and, and use that as the core of these autonomous uh, mini grids that you then interconnect with each other or federate them into a larger system. This is not a new idea, but we wanted to introduce it into this discussion about mini grids. Now, there, there are two um, 
ends of the spectrum that you mentioned, the, the fully meshed, you know, hardened transmission view and the more distributed or almost completely distributed microgrid view. And both of those have, we think, some difficulty. One, on the fully meshed transmission issue, it's hard to imagine hardening a system to a degree where it could have no damage. And so if you have, you know, 10, 20% damage to a transmission line, you're going to see, you know, 100% outage usually. If you see 10, 20% damage to a distribution system, you may only see 30, 40% inability to serve out of that uh, out of that system. And so because of this radial proportional uh, relationship between damage and ability to serve, we think putting um, the distribution system in focus and building kind of around that with the mini grids made a lot of sense. And the other extreme of going all the way with every load having equipment on it, I th- we thought would introduce um, a lot of difficulty in recovery and, and time to recover. So it's sort of this sweet spot in between the two that says the grid has a decent amount of value. Um, distributing energy sources is very, very valuable as well. What's the best place to do that? The Interchange is brought to you by Schneider Electric. Are you considering a microgrid to improve your facility's resiliency, efficiency, and sustainability? If so, it's important to engage a trusted partner like Schneider Electric to help you meet your energy goals and your budget. Schneider Electric will guide you through the most important questions. How would your business and employees be impacted if your facility lost power for a week or more? Are you maximizing your distributed energy resources to unlock new revenue streams and avoid costly peak demand charges? Do you need an easy way to report on your sustainability performance? Microgrids are a natural extension of Schneider Electric's 100-year legacy in the power distribution and energy management business. Learn more about how Schneider Electric is developing new technologies, financing models, and partnerships to maximize your microgrid investment. Go to www.schneider-electric.us slash microgrid. That's www.schneider-electric.us slash microgrid. Or just follow the link in the show notes of your podcast player or on the website. So can you distinguish between this vision of these mini grids that are connected. And and I guess for, you mentioned this, but I'll just drive the point home for anybody who's listening and trying to make sense of what a mini grid is. I think the the size is the core distinction between a mini grid and a microgrid. Microgrid we typically think of as being on a, a single facility or a neighborhood or, you know, hospital, university campus, something like that. So the, the load on a microgrid will be in the single digit or maybe double digit megawatts. The vision that you proposed has, I think, seven mini grids throughout Puerto Rico, each of which basically has a, has a peak load in the hundreds of megawatts. So it's, it's big and it's regional. Yeah. I, I like to um, think of the mini grid as like, it, well, like people talk about the need to spread out the geographic area for renewable energy power plants. And it's like a regionalized, a smaller regionalized grid of a lot of micro grids and other assets. Yes. And, and the vision that we spoke about includes microgrids. So all the the major critical facilities should be able to be autonomous. They sh- you know, microgrids make a lot of sense for like a hospital, um, those types of facilities. So, you know, that this vision and, and the ideas we're trying to introduce into the dialogue with the other stakeholders 
are not inconsistent with a lot of microgrids in, in Puerto Rico, right? Yeah, and so you could have a microgrid within this mini-grid. Exactly. If there's a hospital within one of the mini-grid areas, you might give it the capacity to island itself from the mini-grid if the power goes out. So I guess my the core question here, and, and we can get into this in more detail, but just at the high level, I guess, is cost. You talked about uh, improving the cost of generation, and so solar being cheaper than even solar plus storage, as you defined it, being cheaper than oil. Uh, which I think is generally proving to be true on islands sort of worldwide. I'm curious about the cost of this system of developing these mini grids and the, you know, the TND infrastructure, I guess, especially the distribution infrastructure to support it. Have you done any work looking at what that cost might be and how it might compare to the other plans that have been proposed or the default way of just hardening the grid? Well, we, we knew that other stakeholders were working on that, and in particular, the experience that New York had, um, you know, we knew that they would come uh, with the federal folks as well to bring a set of ideas around hardening that would make a lot of sense. EEI is involved as well. We're, we're a part of EEI. So, again, what we focus on here is kind of a, um, where we thought people weren't putting as much of a spotlight which was on the role that solar, wind, and storage could play in the transformation and how it could reduce the fuel cost and improve the resiliency and power quality. So that was where we put our focus because that, that's what we thought we brought to the table. We also could bring the hardening experience. We do have utilities in our company. But clearly, when we knew that New York was was driving this direction we we thought uh, there would be great ideas coming out of there and then the new york plan came out it has very specific um, recommendations guidelines uh, ways to approach this and estimates of cost so i think you know that's very complementary to what we're proposing in some ways these things could be synergistic so there may be um, ways to overlap uh, these visions and have the net be um, even less expensive because the the batteries can provide some resiliency uh, that you can't have in other ways. So hopefully that answers the question. We're very focused on the fuel as a way to pay for some of the resiliency. Um, And and that was the focus, less on the details of exactly how to harden particular components, although we said they needed to be hardened. So one of the most interesting parts to me of the vision that you guys proposed is the actual resources that you estimated would be needed. You looked at the island, which has a peak load of a little less than 3,000 megawatts, uh, needs about 12,000 gigawatt hours of generation, which is largely coming from fossil fuels right now. And then you estimated the amount of solar and storage that would be required to meet that. First of all, and this is pointed out really well in the paper, you end up saying that we'd need about 10,000 megawatt hour or megawatts of solar in DC terms. So that's like way more capacity, of course, because solar has a lower capacity factor. And that also accounts for overgeneration because of the volatility of solar production. So basically what you do is you say, how much solar would it take in order to meet all the generation needs? on the island, and then how much storage would it take to ensure that that solar can be delivered at all the right times. And that ends up with you estimating about 2,500 megawatts of 10-hour 
duration energy storage. And I'm interested to hear a little bit more about the storage component there, which is why 10 hours of storage duration? You know, we haven't seen a whole lot of 10 hour duration energy storage in the world yet. We see lots of 30 minute or four hour duration. 10 hours is sort of a new thing. Why put it at that duration? Sure. So Shale, I appreciate the, the way you structured that because it, it's clear um, that you know, you think about these things all the time and you, you're able to, to interpret what's going on there. So the, the 10,000 megawatts, as I mentioned um, at, at the opening, we, were, we are focused on the fuel cost as a way to um, make improvements in the recovery. So in order to eliminate the fuel cost, you have to eliminate, you have to bring that much energy onto the island. And so while it says 10,000 megawatts, we, ha- we had to put it in terms people under, you know, think about solar in, and they think about it in, in peak, uh, you know, DC terms. So that's where it ends up being 10,000 megawatts in, in capacity at the peak. But the focus is the energy. We're trying to bring energy onto the island, the energy that's hitting the island every day, we want to capture that energy. And so that, that just happens to be what it takes to do that in the maximal case. So if, if you really maximize this, this is up to 10,000 megawatt, megawatts of solar. And if you, so if that's your starting point, you're focused on the fuel, the, the derivative of that, the next thing you have to figure out is how do I capture that energy in a way that I can actually use it to provide the outcomes that I'm seeking in terms of resilience and, and just running the entire system. And if you just let the math take you where it goes, you, you have to capture that energy quickly, and then you have to be able to dispatch it with a certain amount of power. So the batteries that, that we're talking about here, 25 megawatt, are 2,500 megawatts for 10 hours. It really is just the, the store that you need and the, the way you're going to dispatch it. The island is 3,000 megawatts. You, you, you know, in our vision, we said the least cost power plants would be part of this picture. So you, you, know, you have about another 1,000 megawatts of power plants out there. And so that creates a pretty robust system with 2,500 megawatts of dispatchable power and another 1,000 megawatts of power plants, which obviously can vary their output somewhat. So that, that was how it all came together. Um, there's tons of detail that you have to dig into here behind this that, you know, gets really, you know, nerdy um, that we could go into. So am I right to just as a heuristic to try to help folks understand basically what you're thinking here? So what you're saying is if the island is at peak is about 3000 megawatts of demand. So you said, okay, let's add enough energy storage, let's add enough batteries so that if solar isn't generating on the island at all at that moment, but the batteries are fully charged and you have an additional thousand megawatts of fossil fuel plants that are still operating a bit more flexibly, we could meet peak demand uh, at any given time without solar, if there's no solar generation at that time. And we could do so theoretically for up to 10 hours at a time if the batteries were fully charged. Um, and is that enough based on the sort of load profile in Puerto Rico that if there were another Maria type event, like how, how far would that get us? Do we think that we would have full recovery? So for a typical um, 
system design for an electric system, you have the kind of the active part of the system that's that's producing the energy and doing you know what's called primary frequency control, but then you have you know a second tier of activity ongoing that's like spinning reserve or act you know secondary frequency regulation. All of those activities are going on as well. But an important part that we almost never talk about is a tertiary system, which is usually offline. So this system, and, and we highlight this in the vision as well, would have offline generation that you expect to run almost never. Um, that that would be there that would have a low fixed cost to maintain. Um, but you know, if you ran it all the time, it would be expensive. But given that that you're not expecting to run it very frequently, um, it won't be very expensive. So, and a lot of that, some of that already exists on the island. And so you would move it to that um, kind of a tertiary cold reserve that would be present to deal with the tail, right? The tail risk of, of just relying only on solar or a combination of solar and wind. And the other thing that I saw in the paper that uh, I want to just verify with you is so the the idea with these mini you, often with a microgrid you think of okay in in a resiliency event in an event where the power goes out the microgrid islands and depending on how it's designed either within that microgrid you are operating as normal or you're operating critical loads exclusively the one thing that I saw in your piece is we think about these mini grids and again, in the context of what happens if another Maria comes and hits Puerto Rico is that you would design these regional mini grids so that during emergencies, you could serve over 70% of critical load and over 50% of all loads um, for kind of weeks on end. Is that sort of how you designed it? Yes, that was the design objective. Again, it was a 10 day process, but that is what the team focused on uh, delivering. And so in a situation where you had uh, an extreme event and it caused, you know, what should be unexpected levels of damage after hardening of the transmission, but if that still were to happen, you would still have the ability to serve more than 50% of the load of the island with the solar coming to the island, um, you know, on a rolling average over however many days with a combination of the storage. And you, you could have, again, on extreme uh, events where, um, you know, every once in a while you, you may have to run some standby generation, but very rarely would you need to do that. And again, you, you then have that resiliency, you have the lower fuel cost, and that helps pay for the whole system. Let's talk about the other side of the equation uh, natural gas, you know, so you own and operate LNG facilities throughout Central America, you understand the costs of, you know, liquefied natural gas, um, you understand what it would cost to develop a new terminal in Puerto Rico. So what are the constraints of gas? And why do those variable fuel costs and infrastructure costs make um, solar and batteries more competitive with gas in a place like Puerto Rico or other island countries for that matter. You know, if we were talking before this interview and you said, you know, batteries on the mainland, for example, are not always a slam dunk compared to shale gas. It's really project specific. But here you're talking about a whole set of constraints and added costs on an island 
uh, country or an, an island commonwealth that make batteries and solar much more competitive? So I, I think um, in in the Puerto Rico case, what what's important to think about is the resiliency that you're trying to solve for and where the load exists. So in, in our vision, um, we highlighted that, you know, uh, um, an LNG and combined cycle, and this is consistent with what New York said, uh, the New York-led uh, consortium there said that on the north, if you could have an LNG and combined cycle on the north uh, to serve the San Juan load, it, it makes a lot of sense. And I, we don't necessarily disagree with that. Um, and But it's, we still think the ability to distribute energy across the island is a unique aspect of the solar renewable storage combination. Um, so I, we think that provides a level of resiliency that a you know, just a series of power plants um, wouldn't be able to introduce without, uh, you know, a tremendous amount of spending on on transmission um, on, on the system. So, again, it, it goes back to that um, kind of what is the sweet spot? You have a concentration of load in San Juan. If you could get um, LNG and combined cycle combo in that load center, that would be part of that mini grid. Um, the, what's the issue? What's the distinction between um, LNG and uh, solar storage? I think LNG, you know, the solar would, is going to need to take more land. That's a difference. But um, the solar and storage can take much less time uh, to to develop. Right. So solar storage could be done in a year or less, um, and LNG typically has a pretty long permitting and development cycle. So I find this plan really fascinating and and exciting, to be honest. And I guess I'm curious um, how and if you think it could be operationalized. So we have this ongoing recovery day-to-day right now in Puerto Rico that is going to last for at least months longer. Meanwhile, there's this concurrent process through which there's a solicitation of ideas, this being one of them. Imagine that... uh, all that you know, your idea was accepted, and everybody wanted to do it. How would it happen? I mean, who who would pay for it? Who would operate it? Where would the money come from? What would it take for this to become a reality? Sure, I, I want to take a step back on that. I'll, I'll answer that, but I, I want to highlight the fact that we want to have dialogues like this amongst stakeholders. And we think that you know the ideas are powerful and knowledge is powerful, and so knowing the cost of these things and and how they can be deployed and how they can be arranged is important. You know that those facts getting out and understood is important to inform many different stakeholders and many constituencies that exist in Puerto Rico and in the, uh, the federal level. So that that's you know I think we don't want to miss that. Um, and, and it leads to and it, the answer to your question, which is there are a lot of um, activities ongoing with FEMA and the Army Corps and eventually HUD uh, at the federal level that are trying to figure out, you know, what combination of spending and within which set of rules makes the most sense. And so, again, that, that's why informing uh, the the state of the art today and what's possible 
with today's solutions and, and at what cost is, is just critical at this time. And um, we've heard that people, you know, we've heard folks say, thank you for sharing this. You know, we'll, we're, we want to keep incorporating uh, these data points and a lot of other stakeholders like RMI and others are, are out there, um, you know, driving toward the same and saying, look, look at these data points. Let's think about these and incorporate them. So nuts and bolts, you know, there will be spending done uh, at the federal level. And, and New York has highlighted that in the recovery after Sandy, there was a way to use block grant programs to get um, investment in new solutions that solved for the community outcomes that were being sought that were different than the original infrastructure. So that's been a highlighted path. And, and hopefully that takes, um, you know, takes root uh, for Puerto Rico. Um, obviously, there, there are bills on the Hill and all kinds of things going on right now around that, that, that I, you know, probably am not an expert on. Um, but I would say that is where and how this can be uh, partially funded. And we, we think a focus on the fuel cost is another way to fund this. So as things are being restructured in Puerto Rico um, around all the cost structure of the electric system and the, you know, the Puerto Rico government has been very focused on reducing the cost of electricity and improving the quality for not only for um, manufacturing, but, you know, for the communities. Uh, So I, I think it's, it's, there's an opportunity to look at this and we estimated in, in our vision uh, to the Energy Commission, that that very large amount of solar and storage that we talked about could be funded from 10 years of fuel cost. So if you could avoid 10 years of the current fuel cost, you could pay for that whole system. So we don't want that. We don't want to kind of leave that out of the discussion. And so you, yes, you have some federal uh, money for that comes from the recovery incorporate that into a thinking about the fuel and and that becomes a a fair amount of of dollars uh, to deliver better power quality better resiliency for the people of puerto rico i want to contextualize the storage component a bit more you're well known in storage circles anyone who you know knows the storage industry knows your name you're chairman of the board at the energy storage association you're the president you were the president at aes energy storage um you know, you moved on to be VP and Chief Technology Technology Officer of AES, the AES Corporation. But, you know, you were leading up the charge on the storage side for a long time, for more than eight years. So you know storage inside and out. And we actually just had an episode last week where Shale and I talked on stage about the, the state of the energy storage market. And AES has obviously been, you know, really crucial in driving that market on the grid scale. And one thing Shale said on stage, and Shale, please chime in here if you want to add additional context, but, you know, we looked at GTM research and Wood McKenzie data, and it's pretty clear that in the next four or five years, it's going to be really hard to make the case to build a natural gas peaker power plant in the United States. And I wonder what you think about that, um, how quickly the economics are shifting for battery storage generally, and what that says about the future of gas. Well, as I mentioned to you in a um, yesterday when we were before uh, talking about the show today, um, combined cycle power plants with low cost, like 
shale gas driven low cost uh, gas um, make a lot of sense when you need to run them a lot. So if you need a lot of energy and uh, you want it to come onto the electric system, it's hard to beat that, right? It's it's almost as you know at the theoretical limit of efficiency that you could expect, and it's very low cost fuel. And on a relative basis in the thermal realm, it's you know it's as clean as you're going to get. So I I think the um, we have to keep that in, in context, and that's a real thing. It's important that people understand if you need the base load constantly running electricity, you can find a lot of places where uh, the combined cycle makes a lot of sense, with especially with low-cost uh, fuel. That also is true in, in markets around the world where they're still thinking about building um, coal plants, and you know there, there's an opportunity for them to look at you know, LNG import, as we, you know, as we talk about, that's still transformative, it's still dispatchable. Um, in those growing markets, that that's becoming, you know, something that people are looking at. Um, so I think putting that, you know, out there and moving on to look at peaking power plants, well, peaking power plants aren't used very often, so it's really they're they're an underutilized asset class. So you build these assets, and they just don't get used very often. So unlike a combined cycle that I just described, that's you know serving a, a significant amount of energy, um, you know if you don't if you're not doing a lot of energy with it, it's a big capital investment that's not not doing much. And if you look at storage, storage is um, something that can be synchronized and connected all the time and uh, serving some form of value kind of continually. Uh, and so that's why I think people are making that switch. And it really is, it, it paints in a, an easy picture for folks to say, should I, should I buy this thing or should I buy that thing? And it, it lets people put a price tag on the value of storage. So that, that is the transformative effect I think that it's having. It's something that, uh, our energy storage team spent a lot of time focusing on uh, and to say, you know, early on, eight years ago, we said no one buys storage. There's no procurements for storage, nothing uh, like that out there. So people would ask us, well, how big is the storage market? I looked at a report that says that it's, it doesn't exist. And we would say, oh, this seems like an issue. <laughs> so our team focused a lot on let's sell something that people buy uh, and let's, let's solve problems that people are trying to solve. And that's, that's why peaking uh, power plants um, are, are a, great, a great way to eliminate the value storage because it's something people already buy and then they can make that, that purchase decision. My last question is about the applicability of this Puerto Rico plan that you've proposed to other island grids. We, we estimated at one point, I think there's something like over 3,000 island grids in the world with a peak load over 100 megawatts. So they have some kind of scale to them. Not not all of them are at the size of Puerto Rico, but there are others that are at that scale as well, many of which share a lot of the same problems that Puerto Rico does, expensive imported generation coming from oil, you know, rugged, mountainous, rural uh, areas through which you're currently running transmission lines. So there are other grids that look somewhat similar and presumably susceptible to natural disasters as well. Do you think that this vision of this network of connected 
mini grids is applicable in general or even in, in the specific ways that it was designed to other grids? And do you expect to go around and look at other islands and find places where it, it could work? Or is it Puerto Rico specific? I think the the challenges are, some of the challenges for Puerto Rico are unique. The the hurricane path and the intensity of the hurricanes is, is a, a unique element here. But I, I think in particular, the, the solar storage, um, that, that unique element exists for the Caribbean, obviously. But the, the solar storage combo and what it means to imported fuel for islands, I think is, is transferable to most islands. You see um, the work that AES's team has done, uh, our solar team um, working with energy storage, uh, you know, has signed a, a PPA with KIUC for, you know, 11 cents uh, per kilowatt hour. So f- dispatchable in that case, a five hour battery. Um, that's providing a lot of the benefits that we're saying br- can come to Puerto Rico in terms of savings of cost. right? They're not importing as much fuel. It's providing resiliency capability to the island. So yes, these, this exists in, in most island contexts where, where you need to import the fuel. And in the case where they over, you know, if they have older generation and are making decisions about where to invest capital, um, it, it creates even more value because those older plants are typically less efficient. Chris Shelton is the chief technology officer of AES Corporation. He joined us from the company's headquarters in Virginia. Chris, thanks so much for your time. Really interesting vision, and we really appreciate you uh, exploring this with us. Great. Thank you. Really enjoyed the discussion. And that does it for this week's show. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Uh, we're sending you know, our best wishes to the people in Puerto Rico and, of course, our best wishes to the crews working there to try to bring power back to people. Um, Shale, I really enjoyed this conversation and next week we get a, another good one with our CEO Scott Clavenna. You were there for that what was that all about? That's a fun one. So if you've been listening to this podcast or the Energy Gang for that matter, you know that we do this monthly event series called What It Takes with uh, in collaboration with Powerhouse, the clean tech incubator based in Oakland, where we interview uh, founders and entrepreneurs in clean tech, generally ones who've had a successful exit or sometimes unsuccessful and, and they tell us their stories ranging from sort of their how they grew up to how they founded companies and all the all the ups and downs that they went through this was a fun one because it, we interviewed our own ceo scott clavena who's the founder of gtm um and so you got a bit about his background but also a lot about sort of where gtm comes from so it was meta we will admit that but it was super fun for me and that's the way we're going to end the year with a reflection on the journey that GTM has taken um, from our dear leader, Scott Clavenna. He, um, uh, Scott has been such an amazing person to work under, and you'll, you'll get an inside scoop on how exactly GTM was formed, how it evolved, and what happened during and after the acquisition. And uh, we look forward to bringing that to you. Happy holidays, everyone. We love bringing this podcast to you. And if you love it too then make sure to give us a rating and review on iTunes. It is hugely helpful 
for us as we try to gather more listeners. So if you like us, give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Um, Go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review if you so desire. And then send a link around to your friends. We can be found on every platform that you can imagine. Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, uh, you name it. Chael, good talking to you. We will catch up with you in the new year. Likewise, have a good holiday. With Shale Khan, I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Interchange, weekly conversations on the global energy transformation from Green Tech Media.